0: Chapter Sixty Two of the Mysteries of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Judy Guinan. The Mysteries of London by George Reynolds. Chapter Sixty Two. I was born thirty eight years ago near the village of Walmer in Kent. My father and mother occupied a small cottage, or rather hovel, made of the wreck of a ship upon the sea coast. Their ostensible employment was that of fishing, but it would appear that smuggling and body-snatching also formed a portion of my father's evocations. The rich inhabitants of Walmer and Deal encouraged him in his contraband pursuits by purchasing French silks, gloves, and the scents of him. The gentlemen, moreover, were excellent customers for French brandy, and the ladies for dresses and perfumes. The clergyman of Walmer and his wife were our best patrons in this way, and in consequence of the frequent visits they paid our cottage, they took a sort of liking to me. The parson made me attend the national school regularly every Sunday, and when I was nine years old he took me into his service to clean the boot and knives, brush the clothes, and so forth. I was then very fond of reading, and used to pass all my leisure time in studying books which he allowed me to take out of his library. This lasted till I was twelve years old, when my father was one morning arrested on a charge of smuggling and taken to Dover Castle. The whole neighborhood expressed their surprise that a man who appeared to be so respectable could turn out such a villain. The gentlemen who used to buy brandy of him talked loudly of the necessity of making an example of him. The ladies who were accustomed to purchase gloves, silks, and eau de cologne wondered that such a desperate ruffian should have allowed them to sleep safe in their bed and of course the clergyman and his wife kicked me ignominiously out the door as all things of this nature create a sensation in a small community the parson preached a sermon upon the subject on the following sunday choosing for his text render unto caesar the things that are caesar's and unto god the things that are god's and earnestly enjoining all his congregation to unite in deprecating the conduct of a man who had brought disgrace upon a neighbourhood till then famed for its loyalty its morality and its devotion to the laws of the country my father was acquitted for want of evidence and returned home after having been in prison six months waiting for his trial in the meantime my mother and myself were compelled to receive parish relief not one of the fine ladies and gentlemen who had been the indirect means of getting my father into a scrape by encouraging him in his illegal pursuits would notice us my mother called upon several but their doors were banged in her face when i appeared at sunday-school the parson expelled me declaring that i was only calculated to pollute honest and good boys and the beetle thrashed me soundly for daring to attempt to enter the church All this gave me a very strange idea of human nature, and set me a thinking upon the state of society. Just at that period a baronet in the neighborhood was proved to be the owner of a smuggling vessel, and to be pretty deep in the contraband business himself. He was compelled to run away, an exchequer process, I think they call it, issued against his property, and everything he possessed was swept away. It appeared that he had been smuggling for years, and he had defrauded the revenue to an immense amount he was a widower but he had three children two boys and a girl at school in the neighbourhood oh then what sympathy was created for these poor dear bereaved little ones as the parson called them in a charity sermon which he preached for their benefit and there they were marshalled into the parson's own pew by the beadle and the parson's wife wept over them subscriptions were got up for them the mayor of deal took one boy the banker another, and the clergyman's wife took charge of the girl, and never was seen so much weeping and consoling and compassion before. Well, at that time my mother had got so thin and weak and ill through want and affliction that her neighbors gave her the name of mummy, which she has kept ever since. My father came home and was shunned by everybody. The baronet's uncle happened to die at that period and left his nephew an immense fortune. The baronet paid all the fines, settled the exchequer matters, and returned to Walmer. A triumphal reception awaited him. Balls, parties, concerts—the routs took place in honor of the event. And the mayor, the banker, and the clergyman and his wife were held up as the patterns of philanthropy and humanity. Of course, the baronet rewarded them liberally for having taken care of his children in the hour of need this business again set me a-thinking and i began to comprehend that birth and station made an immense difference in the views that the world adopted of men's actions my father who had only higgled and figgled with smuggling affairs upon a miserably small scale was set down as the most atrocious monster unhung because he was one of the common herd but the baronet who had carried on a systemic contraband trade to an immense amount was looked upon as a martyr to tyrannical laws because he was one of the upper classes and possessed a title so my disposition was soured by these proofs of human injustice at my very entrance upon life up to this period in spite of the contemplation of the lawless trade carried on by my father i had been a regular attendant at church and at the sunday school and I declare most solemnly that I never went to sleep at night, nor commenced my morning avocations without saying my prayers. But when my father got into trouble, the beetle kicked me out of the church, and the parson drove me out of the school, and so I began to think that if my religion was only serviceable and available as long as my father remained unharmed by the law, it could not be worth much. From that moment I never said another prayer and never opened a Bible or prayer book still i was inclined to labour to obtain an honest livelihood and i employed my father upon my knees not to force me to assist in his proceedings of smuggling and body-snatching to both which he was compelled by dire necessity to return the moment he was released from jail he told me i was a fool to think of living honestly as the world would not let me but he added that i might make the trial Pleased with this permission, and sincerely hoping that I might obtain some occupation, however menial, which would enable me to eat the bread of honest toil, I went round to all the farmers in the neighbourhood, and offered to enter their service as a ploughboy or stable-boy. The moment they found out who I was, they one and all turned me away from their doors. One said, Like father, like son. Another asked if I was mad to think that I could thus thrust myself into an honest family. A third laughed in my face a fourth threatened to have me taken up for wanting to get into his house to commit a felony a fifth swore that there was gallows written upon my countenance a sixth ordered his men to loosen the bulldog at me and a seventh would have had me ducked in his horse-pond if i had not run away dispirited but not altogether despairing i returned home the following day i walked into deal which almost joins walmer and called at several tradesmen's shops to inquire if they wanted an errand-boy my reception by these individuals was worse than which i had met at the hands of the farmers one asked me if i thought he would run the risk of having his house indicted as a receptacle for thieves and vagabonds a second pointed to his children and said do you suppose i want to bring them up in the road to the gallows a third locked up his till in a fright and threatened to call a constable and a fourth lashed me severely with a horsewhip still i was not totally disheartened i determined to call upon some of those ladies and gentlemen who had been my father's best customers for his contraband articles one lady upon hearing my business seized hold of the poker with one hand and her salts bottles with the other a second was nearly fainting and rang the bell for her maid to bring her some eau de cologne the very eau de cologne which my father had smuggled for her a third begged me with tears in her eyes to retire or my very suspicious appearance would frighten her lap-dog into fits and a fourth an old lady who was my father's best customer for french brandy held up her hands to heaven and employed the lord to protect her from all sabbath breakers profane swearers and drunkards finding that i had nothing to expect from the ladies i tried the gentleman who had been accustomed to patronize my father previous to his misfortune the first swore at me like a trooper and assured me that he had always prophesied i should go wrong the second spoke civilly and regretted that his excellent advice had been thrown away upon my father whom he had vainly endeavoured to avert from his wicked courses it was for smuggling things for this gentleman that my father had been arrested and the third made no direct answer but shook his head solemnly and wondered what the world was coming to i was now really reduced to despair i however resolved to try some of the very poorest tradesmen in the town by these miserable creatures i was received with compassion and interest and my case was fully comprehended by them some even gave me a few halfpence and one made me sit down and dine with him his wife and his children they however one and all declared that they could not take me into their service for if they did they would be sure to offend all their customers thus was it that the overbearing conduct and atrocious tyranny of the more wealthy part of the community compelled the poorer portions to smother all sympathy in my behalf a sudden thought now struck me i resolved to call next day upon the very baronet who had himself suffered so much in consequence of the customs laws accelerated by the new hope awakened within me i repaired on the following morning to the splendid mansion which he now inhabited I was shown into a magnificent room which he received me lounging before a cheerful fire he listened very patiently to my tale and then spoke as nearly as i can recollect as follows my good lad i have not the slightest doubt that you are anxious to eat the bread of honesty as you very properly express it but that bread is not within the reach of everybody and if we were all to pick and choose in this world my god what would become of us my dear young man i occupy a prominent position amidst the gentry in these parts and i have also a duty to fulfil towards society society has condemned you unheard i grant you nevertheless society has condemned you under these circumstances i have no alternative but to decline taking you into my service and i must moreover request you to remember that if you are ever found loitering upon my grounds i shall have you put in the stocks i regret that my duty to society sunspots me thus to act you may conceive with what feelings i heard this long tirade i was literally confounded and retired without venturing upon a remonstrance i knew not what course to adopt to return home and inform my parents that i could obtain no work was to lay myself under the necessity of becoming a smuggler and body-snatcher at once as a desperate resource i thought of calling upon the clergyman and explaining all my sentiments to him i hoped to be able to convince him that although my father was bad or supposed to be bad yet i abhorred vice in all its shapes and was anxious only to pursue honest courses as a christian minister he could not i imagine, be so uncharitable as to infer my guilt in consequence of that of my parent and accordingly to him did i repair he had just returned to his own house from a funeral and was in a hurry to be off on a shooting excursion for he had on his sporting garb beneath his surplice he listened to me with great impatience and asked if my father still pursued his contraband trade Seeing that I hesitated how to reply, he exclaimed, turning his eyes up to heaven, Speak the truth, young man, and shame the devil. I answered in the affirmative, and he then said carelessly, Well, go and speak to my wife. She will act in the matter as she chooses. Rejoiced at this hopeful turn in the proceeding, I sought his lady as I was desired. She heard all I had to say, and then observed, Not for worlds could I receive you into my house again but if your father has any silks and gloves, very cheap and very good, I do not mind purchasing them. And remember, she added, as I was about to depart, I do not want these things. I only offer to take them for the purpose of doing you a service. My motive is purely a Christian one. I returned home. Well, said my father, what luck this morning. None, I replied. And what do you mean to do, lad? to become a smuggler a body snatcher or anything else that you choose was my reply and the sooner we begin the better for i am sick and tired of being good so i became a smuggler and a resurrection man you have heard perhaps that deal is famous for its boatsmen and pilots it is also renowned for the beauty of the sailors daughters one of those lovely creatures captivated my heart for i can even talk sentimentally when i think of those times and she seemed to like me in return her name was katherine price kate price as she was called by her acquaintance and a prettier creature the sun never shone upon she was good and virtuous too and she alone understood my real disposition which even now that i bad embarked in lawless pursuits still panted to be good and virtuous also at this time i was nineteen and she was one year younger we loved in secret and we met in secret for her parents would not for one moment have listened to the idea of our union my hope was to obtain a good sum of money by one desperate venture in the contraband line and run away with kate to some distant part of the country where we could enter upon some way of business that would produce us an honest livelihood this hope sustained us at this time there were a great many sick sailors in deal hospital and numerous funerals took place in the burial ground of that establishment my father and i determined to have up a few of the corpses, for we always knew where to dispose of as many subjects as we could obtain by these means i proposed to raise enough money to purchase in france the articles that i meant to smuggle into england and thereby obtain the necessary funds for carrying out the plans upon which kate and myself were resolved good luck attended upon my father and myself in respect to the body-snatching business we raised thirty pounds and with that we set sail for france in the boat that we always hired for our smuggling expeditions we landed in Calais and made our purchases we bought an immense quantity of brandy at ten pence a quart gloves at eightpence a pair, and three watches at two-pound ten each, and some eau de cologne proportionately cheap. Our thirty pounds we calculated would produce as a hundred and twenty. We put out to sea again, and about ten o'clock at night the wind was blowing stiff from the northeast, and by the time we had been an hour at sea it increased to a perfect hurricane. Never shall I forget that awful night. The entire ocean was white with foam, but the sky above was as black as pitch. We weathered the tempest until we reached the shore about a mile to the southward of Wilmer, a place called Kingsdon. We touched the beach. I thought everything was safe. A huge bellow broke over the stern of the lugger, and in a moment the boat was a complete wreck. My father leapt on shore from the bow at the instant this catastrophe took place. I was swallowed up along with the ill-fated bark. I was, however, an excellent swimmer, and I combated and fought and struggled with the ocean as a man would wrestle with a savage animal that held him in his grasp i succeeded in gaining the beach but so weak and enfeebled was i that my father was compelled to carry me to our hovel close by i was put to bed a violent fever seized upon me i became delirious and for six weeks i lay tossing upon a bed of sickness at length i got well but what hope remained for me we were totally ruined so was the poor fisherman whose boat was wrecked upon that eventful night i wrote a note to kate to tell her all that had happened and to make an appointment for the following sunday evening that we might meet and talk over the altered aspect of affairs scarcely had i dispatched the letter to the care of kate's sister-in-law who was in our secret and managed our little correspondence when my father came in and asked me if i felt myself well enough to accompany him on a little expedition that evening i replied in the affirmative he then told me that a certain surgeon for whom we did business and who resided in deal required a particular subject for which had been buried that morning in walmer churchyard i did not ask my father any more questions but that night i accompanied him to the burial ground between eleven and twelve o'clock the surgeon had shown my father the grave in the afternoon and we had a cart waiting in the lane close by the church is in a secluded part surrounded by trees and some little distance from any habitations There was no danger of being meddled with; moreover, we had often operated in the same ground before. To work we went in the usual manner: we shoveled out the soil, broke open the coffin, thrust the corpse into a sack, filled up the grave once more, and carried our prize safe off to the cart. We then set off at a round pace toward Deal, and arrived at the back door of the surgeon's house by two o'clock. He was up and waiting for us; we carried the corpse into the surgery and laid it upon a table. "'You are sure it's the right one,' said the surgeon. "'It is the body from the grave that you pointed out,' answered my father. "'The fact is,' resumed the surgeon, "'that this is a very peculiar case. Six days ago a young female rose in the morning in perfect health. That evening she was a corpse. I opened her and found no traces of poison, but her family would not permit me to carry the examination any further. They did not wish her to be hacked about. Since her death came, some love letters have been found in her drawer, but there was no name attached to any of them. I began to feel interested. I scarcely knew why, but this was the manner in which I was accustomed to write to Kate. The surgeon continued, I am therefore anxious to make another and more searching investigation than on the former occasion into the cause of death, but I will soon satisfy myself that this is indeed the corpse I mean. With these words the surgeon tore away the shroud from the face of the corpse. I cast an anxious glance upon the pale, cold, marble countenance my blood ran cold my legs trembled my strength seemed to have failed me was i mistaken could it be the beloved of my heart yes that is miss price said the surgeon coolly all doubt on my part was now removed i had exhumed the body of her whom a thousand times i had pressed to my sorrowful breast whom i had clasped to my aching heart i felt as if i had committed some horrible crime a murder or some other deadly deed The surgeon and my father did not notice my emotions, but settled their accounts. The medical man then offered us each a glass of brandy. I drank mine with avidity, and then accompanied my father from the spot, uncertain whether to rush back and claim the body or not. But I did not do so. For some days I wandered about scarcely knowing what I did, and certainly not caring what became of me. One morning I was roving amidst the fields when I heard a loud voice exclaim, I say, you fellow there, open the gate, will you? i turned round and recognized the baronet on horseback he had a large hunting-whip in his hand open the gate said i and whom for whom for repeated the baronet why for me to be sure fellow then open it yourself said i the baronet was near enough to me to reach me with his whip and he dealt me a stinging blow across my face maddened with pain and soured with vexation i leapt over the gate and attacked the baronet with a stout ash stick which i carried in my hand i dragged him from his horse and thrashed him without mercy when i was tired i walked quietly away he roaring after me that he would be avenged upon me as sure as i was born the next day i was arrested and taken before a magistrate the baronet appeared against me and to my surprise swore that i had assaulted him with view to rob him and that he had the greatest difficulty in protecting his person. watch i told my story and showed the mark of the baronet's whip across my face the justice asked me if i could bring forward any witnesses to character the baronet exclaimed how can he he has just been in dover castle for smuggling never i cried emphatically well your father has then said the baronet this i could not deny oh that's just the same thing cried the magistrate and i was committed to jail for the trial of the next maidstone assizes for three months i lay in prison i was not however completely hardened yet nor did i associate with those who drank and sang and swore i detested vice in all its shapes and i longed for an opportunity to be good it may seem strange to you who know me now to hear me speak thus but you were not aware of what i was then i was tried and found guilty the next two years of my life i passed at the hulks at woolwich dressed in dark gray and wearing a chain round my leg even then i did not grow so corrupted but that i sought for work the moment i was set at liberty again I resolved not to return home to my parents for i detested the ways into which they had led me turned away from the hulks one fine morning at ten o'clock without a farthing in my pocket nor the means of obtaining a morsel of bread my prospects were miserable enough i could not obtain any employment at woolworth evening was coming on and i was hungry suddenly i thought of enlisting pleased with this idea i went to the barracks and offered myself as a recruit The regiment stationed there was about to embark for the East Indies in a few days and wanted men. Although certain of being banished, as it were, to the most unhealthy climate for twenty-one years, I preferred that to the life of a vagabond or criminal in England. The sergeant was delighted with me because I could read and write well, but the surgeon would not pass me. He said to me, You have either been half-starved for a length of time, or you have undergone a long imprisonment, for your flesh is as flabby as possible. Thus was this hope destroyed now what pains had the law taken to make me good even supposing that i was really bad at the time of my condemnation the law locked me up for two years half starved me and yet exacted from me much more labor as a strong healthy man could have performed then the law turned me out into the wide world so weak reduced and feeble that even the last resource of the most wretched namely enlisting in the regiment bound for india was closed against me well that night i wandered into the country and slept under a hedge On the following morning I was compelled to satisfy the ravenous cravings of my hunger with Swedish turnips plucked from the fields. This food lay so cold upon my stomach that I felt ready to drop with illness, misery, and fatigue. And yet, in this Christian land, even that morsel against which my heart literally heaved was begrudged me. I was not permitted to satisfy my hunger with the food of beasts. A constable came up and took me into custody for robbing the turnip field. I was conducted before a neighboring Justice of the Peace. He asked me what I meant by stealing the turnips. I told him that I had fasted for twenty-four hours and was hungry. Nonsense! Hungry! He exclaimed. I'd give five pounds to know what hunger is. You kind of fellows eat turnips by way of luxury, you do. And not because you're hungry. I assured him that I spoke the truth. Well, why don't you go to work? He demanded. So I will, sir, with pleasure, if you will give me employment, I replied me give you employment he shouted i wouldn't have such a fellow about me if he'd work for nothing where did you sleep last night under a hedge sir was my answer ah i thought so he exclaimed a rogue and a vagabond evidently and this excellent specimen of the great unpaid committed me forthwith to the treadmill for one month as a rogue and vagabond the treadmill is a horrible punishment it is too bad even for those that are really rogues and vagabonds the weak and the strong take the same turn without any distinction and i have seen men fall down fainting upon the platform with the risk of having their legs or arms smashed by the wheel through their sheer exhaustion then the miserable fare that one receives in prison renders him more fit for a hospital than for the violent labor of the treadmill I had been two years at the Hulks, and was not hardened. I had been a smuggler and a body-snatcher, and was not hardened. But this one month's imprisonment and spell at the treadmill did harden me, and hardened me completely. I could not see any advantage in being good. I could not find out any inducement, to be honest. As for a desire to lead an honorable life, that was absurd. How I laughed the idea to scorn, and I swore within myself that whenever I did commence a course of crime, I would not be an unsparing demon at my work oh how i then detested the very name of virtue the rich look upon the poor as degraded reptiles that are born in infamy and cannot possibly possess a good instinct i reasoned within myself let a rich man accuse a poor man before a justice a jury or a judge and see how quick the poor wretch is condemned the aristocracy hold the lower classes in horror and abhorrence the legislature thinks that if it does not make the most grinding laws to keep down the poor the poor will rise up and commit the most unheard atrocities in fact the rich are prepared to believe any infamy which is imputed to the poor it was thus that i reasoned and i looked forward to the day of my release with a burning maddening drunken joy that day came i was turned adrift as before without a shilling without a crust that alone was as bad as branding the words rogue and vagabond upon my forehead how could i remain honest even if i had any longer been inclined to do so when i could not get work and had no money no bread no lodging the legislature does not think of all this it fancies that all its duty consists in punishing men for crimes and never dreams of adopting measures to prevent them from committing crimes at all but i now no more thought of honesty i went out of prison a confirmed ruffian i had no money no conscience no fear no hope no love no friendship no sympathy no kindly feeling of any sort my soul had turned to the blackness of hell the very first thing i did was to cut myself a good tough ash stick with a heavy knob at one end the next thing i did was to break into the house of the very justice who had sentenced me to the treadmill for eating a raw turnip and i feasted jovially upon the cold fowl and ham which i found in his larder i also drank success to my new career in a bumper of his final wine this compliment was due him he had made me what i was i carried off a small quantity of plate all that i could find you may be sure and took my departure from the house of the justice as i was hurrying away from this scene of my first exploit i passed by a fine large barn also belonging to my friend the magistrate i did not hesitate a moment what to do i owed him a recompense for my month at the treadmill and i thought i might as well add incendiary to my other titles of rogue and vagabond besides i longed for mischief the world had persecuted me long enough the hour of retaliation had arrived i fired the barn and scampered away as hard as i could i halted at a distance at about half a mile and turned to look A bright column of flame was shooting up to heaven oh i how happy did feel at that moment happy this is not the word i was mad intoxicated delirious with joy i literally danced as i saw the barn burning i was avenged on the man who would not allow me to eat a cold turnip to save me from starving that one cold turnip cost him dear the fire spread and communicated with his dwelling-house and there was no adequate supply of water the barn the stacks the outhouses the mansion were all destroyed but that was not all the only daughter of the justice a lovely girl of nineteen was burnt to death i read the entire account in the newspapers a few days afterwards and the upper classes wonder that there are so many incendiary fires my only surprise is that there are so few all the lucifer match is a fearful weapon in the hands of the man whom the laws the aristocracy and the present state of society have ground down to the very dust I felt all my power, I knew all my strength, I was aware of all my importance as a man. When I read of the awful extent of the misery and desolation which I had thus caused, oh, I was singly avenged. I now bethought me of punishing the baronet in the same manner. He had been the means of sending me for two years to the hulks at Woolwich. Pleased with this idea, I jogged merrily on towards Walmer. It was late at night when I reached home. I found my mother watching by my father's deathbed, and arrived just in time to behold him breathe his last. My mother spoke to me about decent interment for him. I laughed in her face. Had he ever allowed anyone to sleep quietly in his grave? No. How could he then hope for repose in the tomb? My mother remonstrated. I threatened to dash out her brains with my stout ash stick, and on the following night I sold my father's body to the surgeon who had autonomized poor Kate Price. This was another vengeance on my part not many hours elapsed before i set fire to the largest barn upon the baronet's estate i waited in the neighborhood and glutted myself with a view of the conflagration. the damage was immense the next day i composed a song upon the subject which i have never since forgotten you may laugh at the idea of me becoming a poet but you know well enough that i received some trifle of education that i was not a fool by nature and that in early life i was fond of reading the lines were these the incendiary song the lucifer match the lucifer match tis the weapon for us to wield how bonnily burns up rick and thatch and the crop just howls from the field the proud may oppress the rich distress and drive us from their door but they cannot snatch the lucifer match from the hand of the desperate poor the perch-proud squire and the tyrant peer and keep their game laws still and the very glance of the overseer may continue to freeze and kill the wealthy and great and the chiefs of state may tyrannize more and more but they cannot snatch the lucifer match from the hand of the desperate poor oh give us bread is a piteous wail that is murmured far and wide an echo takes up and repeats the tale but the rich man turns aside the justice of peace may send his police to scour the country o'er but they cannot snatch the lucifer match from the hand of the desperate poor then hurrah hurrah for the lucifer match tis a weapon of despair how bonnily blaze up barn and thatch the poor man's revenge is there for the worm will turn on the feet that spurn and surely a man is more oh none can e'er snatch the lucifer match from the hand of the desperate poor the baronet suspected that i was the cause of the fire as i had just returned to the neighbourhood and he had me arrested and taken before a justice But there was not a shadow of proof against me, nor a pretense to keep me in custody. I was accordingly discharged with the admonition to take care of myself, which was as much to say, if I can find an opportunity of sending you to prison, I will. Walmer and its neighborhood grew loathsome to me. The image of Kate Price constantly haunted me, and I was moreover shunned by everyone who knew that I had been at the Hulks. I accordingly sold off all the fishing tackle and other traps and came up to London with old mummy. I need say no more. And there's enough of your history to set a man a thinking, exclaimed the waiter at the Boozing Kin. There is, indeed. Ah, I believe you. There is, observed the cracksman, draining the pot which had contained the egg flip. The clock struck midday when Holford entered the parlour of the Boozing Kin. End of chapter sixty two Recording by Judy Guinan.